short disclaimer as we begin this week's podcast. This is not an episode about show business this week. This is an episode about these current events that are happening in March of 2021. And the interview with J.W. Walker was conducted before the last two weeks events of gun violence happened. The views expressed in this podcast are those of Michelle Bruckner. So I just wanted to say that before we begin. Thank you. everybody. As I'm recording this, it is a beautiful spring morning. And yesterday, many people lost their lives in Boulder, Colorado, due to gun violence. Last weekend, they lost their lives at a house party in Philadelphia. And last week, Asian American women were the victims of gun violence in the Atlanta area. Gabrielle Giffords was shot in the head over 10 years ago. And she lived, but she's not the same. She struggles with her recovery. She has some damage that can never be repaired. My next guest today is J.W. Walker, who is an activist, and he is part of an organization that I belong to called Gays Against Guns. And make no mistake, the gun issue in America is very divisive. It's very political. Some people believe they have the right to bear arms because it's in the Constitution. But... Let me say it here. Nobody has the right to take somebody else's life. The guy in Atlanta got a gun that very day. You can't even register to vote that same day in Georgia. When is the madness going to stop? We need action. We need very strict laws to make sure that nobody else can be in a public space or a private space and lose their lives. Come on. Enough is enough. I'm tired. And I'm tired of people losing their family members. And I'm tired of not even feeling safe in my own beautiful country of the United States of America. Wake up. When is it going to stop? Here's my interview. Welcome, J.W. Walker, to the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast. I want to introduce this really amazing person to the audience. He's an activist, Rise and Resist, Gaze Against Guns, Sing Out Louise, and Reclaiming Pride Coalition. Did I get it right? Yep. Yeah. Reclaim Pride Coalition, but close enough. <laughs> Reclaim, Reclaim Pride Coalition. So welcome. Welcome. Thank you so, so much for having me. You are welcome. You know, I'm over here talking about show business and you are out there on the street in the world making change. Do you want to talk about what led you to be such an active activist? Sure, absolutely. Um, I had been involved in activism uh, back in the late 90s in the wake of Matthew Shepard's death. Um, I uh, helped start an organization called the October 19th Coalition, which was you know, the day Basically, uh, the, a political funeral had been held for him sort of right after he died. 
and the NYPD had sort of gone in and charged on horseback into all, you know, all of these queer activists who were just really mourning him and just doing a march and, you know, in, in solidarity and against hate crimes. And so I went to the first meeting after that. Uh, and we, um, you know, from the sort of spontaneous, these two spontaneous uh, occurrences uh, started this October 19th coalition to focus on um, to hate crimes against LGBTQ people, against black people, against really any marginalized people. Uh, you may remember there was the James Byrd, that lynching in Texas at the same time where he was dragged at the back of a truck uh, that had happened a few months before Matthew Shepard died. So I worked with those folks for um, for about a year and a half. Um, we ended up getting hate crimes legislation passed in, in New York. Then I went to work for Gay Men's Health Crisis for about 10 years in the development department. I kind of left sort of street activism behind. Then when I left uh, Gay Men's Health Crisis, I sort of left that whole world behind activism, advocacy, all of it was working in real estate. I, you know, a little clicktivism once social media started happening, but I really wasn't actively involved in any of the of movements. And then um, on June 12th in 2016, Mad Men stormed into the Pulse nightclub in Orlando and just killed 49 people and injured another 51 people. And and he himself was killed. And uh, a few days after that, some some folks who I didn't know at the time um, called just called for a meeting at the LGBT Center uh, here in New York on 13th Street. And a friend, a former GMAC board member, a friend of mine, uh, just sent me the the link to the meeting. You know, said you might be interested in this because I've been putting stuff up on on Facebook about how just distraught I was about about that um, that horror. Uh, and so I went to that meeting and I, there were a few people that I knew from, from my past GMHC, from my work with AIDS Walk, from the October 19th coalition. And, uh, you know, we just decided that uh, it was time for, for, for gay guy, for gay folks, really, for queer folks to sort of take the reins in this battle um, against gun violence against this gun violence epidemic and just sort of use the techniques that we have used marriage equality, really from from the, the fight against AIDS and ACT UP to sort of bring something to the gun violence prevention movement that really hadn't been there before, which was direct action, which was, you know, in the streets protests. The, the gun violence prevention movement before that was, you know, very good and very effective and, you know, got some things done, but uh, it was done sort of behind the scenes and, you know, and lobbying and having meetings with Congress people and vigils and and things of that nature. And, you know, we sort of looked at that sort of mise-en-scene and said, you know, where's the anger? Where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the screaming in the streets? Where's the noise making? Where, you know, where's that, that passion? And we said, we can bring that along with some flair and some glitter and some <laughs> great gay imagery. And so I, we started Gays Against Guns about, I guess the nightclub shooting happened on the the 12th, two weeks after that was Pride. It happened on a Sunday. Two weeks after that was Pride Sunday. And so uh, in that two weeks, we managed to amass a thousand people to march with us in a contingent. Now Speaker Corey Johnson, the Speaker of the New York City Council, who is just the council member for, for uh, Chelsea and West Village and North Soho, because we were so late in the process, it was too late to sort of 
arrange a space in the Pride Parade that year. And so Corey very generously gave us his space in the parade that was already set up. And we were able to march and we made a big impact. We got a big front page picture from the New York Times the next day. Um, our human beings, which is a really important part of our work in GAG, which are the people that you might see at many protests dressed in all in white and veiled and uh, holding a placard with the name of, in that case, it was one person, each person holding a name of one of the people murdered at Pulse. And then we just sort of went off from there and started protesting, you know, people whom we call NRA puppets, like Lee Zeldin, who is the Congress member, Republican Congress member for the first district of Long Island, uh, who recently announced that he's going to try to run for governor, which we'll have something to say about. <laughs> and, you know, and really putting that focus on the NRA, um, which I think we did very effectively in concert with a bunch of other uh, gun violence prevention groups all over the country. But we did that sort of loud in the street doing, uh, you know, doing civil disobedience, you know, going into the halls of Congress, doing actions, really theatrical actions in uh, very, very public places and at very public events, just to sort of keep that, keep that, that thing in the headlines, keep that in the news cycle, keep that, you know, the, we have this tendency in this country to talk a lot about gun violence right after we have a mass shooting. And then it dies down and you don't hear anything in the papers or anything for quite some time until there's another, another mass shooting or another assassination or another really horrible kind of uh, shooting event that makes headlines and then it dies down again. And so we wanted to fill that space between those mass shootings with meaningful action to try to do our part to keep people's minds uh, and, and eyeballs on the issue. And I think that we did that really effectively. We learned how to work with other groups that were in the more traditional mode of, of gun violence prevention and to coordinate our efforts with theirs and to work on campaigns where they could do the sort of press conference thing and we could do the sort of protest thing and that worked really well. And so that whole process, that was June of six, 2016, so that whole process between June and November, it just sort of reawakened that activist spirit in me uh, so that when the worst possible election results ever happened, we in New York just did not take it sitting, uh, laying down at all. I just sort of threw myself into into groups that were forming in resistance to, to Donald Trump and to his agenda and to everything he stood for, particularly at that time, it was Rise and Resist, uh, but also Refuse Fascism, which I did. I worked with them for about a year and just sort of continued on for, from there as a sort of founding member of, uh, of those groups. And uh, then as also that that uh, Christmas period, Gays Against Guns had come up with an idea to do Gag Reflex. Well, no, actually at the time it was Gag Nog, which was uh, to do a little choral group around town called Gag Nog, where we rewrote all these Christmas carols to be gun violence prevention, you know, anti-gun violence uh, carols. Like I'm, I'm blanking on names right now. Um, Rudolph the Gunshot Victim, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, a lot of really sort of dark and twisted takes on traditional Christmas carols. And so we were gagnog during the holiday season. And then that following January, January 2017, of course, was the Women's March. It was no longer Christmas, so we couldn't do any of those Christmas songs. And uh, in the meantime, we had changed the writing right after the election to about half of the songs being against gun violence and half of them being about Trump. Uh, so, you know, we did Donnie the Con Man was our number one hit with a bullet that first year. Um, first Christmas season. Um, so then we went to the Women's March and we rebranded ourselves as Gag Reflex. And we did a lot of patriotic standards and pop songs, 
but basically really focused on Trump and the threat that he posed to the country. And then uh, then that broke off into its own organization called Sing Out Louise, and I remained a part of that. And we've been singing in the streets ever since. Not nearly as good as you sing, my dear, because <laughs> I've had the great pleasure of hearing you perform. But uh, thank just you. Good enough for a street corner. Good enough for a street corner. Um, yeah. So, so you know, I read it. I read a gag post that said there's been 40 shootings since this year has begun already. I noticed that the shootings were down during lockdown. What is your take about this year? And every day I go to sleep at night and I pray like that somebody will, somebody with that needs help will get the help they need before they make the choice to resort to committing a mass act of violence, like every day. And I read that the father of uh, one of the Sandy Hook victims, it was the kid's 15th birthday yesterday, and he Mm. should have been on his high school bus with his brother and sister. And he, you know, he made it till six years old, not 15. So what is your take about this year? And it doesn't seem like we're off to a good start at all. No, uh, it seems to get worse every year. Um, and this past year has been, it's been a very interesting sort of lens to see the, the gun violence epidemic in this country through. Because you're right, when we first went into lockdown, you know, a lot of violent crime went down, uh, including including gun violence for that first couple of months. And then when, once we got to the summer and, you know, this just this this whole pandemic just was not letting up. People were losing family members or people were losing income and losing their jobs and not knowing where the next anything was coming from and not having any kind of stability in their housing unless they were sitting on some measure of, of wealth or had some broader support system. And, you know, what I, what I think I learned the most about it is the way is that the presence of gun is the worst indicator about the amount of gun violence that you're going to have, because what brings on these most horrific sorts of these horrific incidences of gun violence are, are kind of, are, are either personal stressors, but I think less is normally personal stressors, right? You know, Omar Mateen, who shot up Pulse, he was, you know, he was possibly conflicted about his sexuality. His father was a very religious person. He was perhaps forced into marriage to his first wife and then a second wife. And that's the way that those kind of dynamics work on the psyche that can lead to someone acting out. So, you know, we've, we've seen that, you know, many times in these sort of mass shooting incidents. Obviously, Sandy Hook is another another very strong case of someone who had serious emotional, emotional and psychological problems and who had then had access to his mother's guns. And so we know we we sort of know how those kind of stressors work on the individual. But I think that last summer, what we saw, especially in a lot of major urban areas outside of the racial reckoning that was also happening, which, while necessary in and of itself, is a stressor, right? But what we see is how communal communal stressors can have this really strong effect on a, on the on the communal psyche, and we saw this huge uptick you know, over 200% increase in gun violence, gun violence, instances of gun violence and gun violence deaths, certainly here in New York City, but I think in several other major urban areas. And, and the common thread is just the preponderance, the number of guns that are present, that are easily accessible, that are being trafficked in through what we call the iron, uh, the iron pipeline from 
suburban and rural areas and areas with lax gun laws into major cities like New York or Chicago or Detroit, which may have the strongest gun laws they possibly can in an urban area. But as long as someone can drive a car there from someone from somewhere else, then, you know, the laws in this city don't do a whole lot you know, because these, these guns are still coming in. So we know, you know, we, we, we sort of see how just this, this sea of, of armaments that are present in all of our, our, our major urban areas, when there are these societal stressors, the presence of them, the availability of them just makes it almost inevitable that we're going to have that kind of violence, you know, because we're human beings. And the one thing that we know about human beings is that human beings react to stress with violence and we don't have enough support for people's emotional health, for people's psychological health, for people's social health in our culture. That's not something that we have value. That's not something that we have put put into a, a place of importance broadly. And so if we have nothing to work at to work to heal that kind of stress, that kind of turmoil, that kind of that kind of community strain that the, a situation like the pandemic, you know, brought about, um, it's kind of inevitable when there are guns everywhere that people are going to act out with them. And I also think a big portion of this in the 70s, in the 80s, there were state funded institutions and doctors that worked with mental health. And those all got shut down. And so many people that I, yeah, so many people that I see in New York are, they live on the street and some of those people cannot take care of themselves. They don't belong on the street. They like, who's taking care of them? I think we have to take care of them and people don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. We saw what happened on the Upper West Side with the, with the homeless shelters. Oh my good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lady that I knew that actually lived in one of those places and she overheard her neighbor being talked to by a social worker and the social worker said do you like your room and the person said i love my room why is it so difficult for these basic needs not to be met as a society it it really is disturbing because it's, it's another one of those instances where people allowed their emotions to override their common sense and uh, you know we, we we see it constantly with the with with the way that certain groups vote against their against their own interests. You know if we if we spend the money as a city, as a state, as a country to create spaces where people can get the sort of healing and can get the sort of uh, sort of control over their lives and get access to medication and get access to counseling and all of those sorts of things, heal themselves. It's better for society as a whole. It's, you know, it's better for everybody. It makes people make more money. It, it reduces the stresses on, on, on the culture and it makes everyone's life better. I mean, there was at the beginning of, of the lockdown, you know, once we got into, say, late March, early April, do you remember when you would go outside? I don't, I don't know. Some people went outside. Would, I, I would go outside and have a walk or I would go see, go to go to meet a friend outside and have a little walk friend. And with all of that, all of that emptiness around, the one thing that you could see so clearly was the number of homeless people, the number of oh, yes. people struggling who, had, who couldn't lock down, who had nowhere to go. Our shelter system has been broken for as long as I've lived in this city. And that's 35 years. And so it, it was, they were just sort of brought into high relief by through the absence of so many, you know, of all other people going about their, their daily business on the subways, especially, and just out on the streets. And, you know, it was 
just, you know, it, it just hit you because you just know that, especially in this city where we have the NYPD being the first line of contact by the city, by the, by the state, by the powers that be with these homeless people. And we see how often those contacts lead just to throwing people in jail, violence against these homeless people, taking their belongings and throwing them away. The list goes on and on. And, you know, it, it just sort of, when I was out there, when I was out there at that point, April, May, I was like, it'd be so easy, it'd be so easy for, for the city to set up a team of, of social workers and psychologists to go out and talk to these people and, and see, you know, see what they need, see what they would like. I mean, there are obviously always going to be some people that are, are just, they just want to live out there. They just, you know, that's the way that they're, that's the way their psychology goes when they've been too long out of treatment and there's, there's not a lot you can do, but a lot of those people out on the streets, like the woman that you spoke about in, uh, in the hotel, would love nothing more than to have the security of having a place to lay their head at night and feel safe and and to feel warm and to feel in to have that measure of control. But we miss every opportunity as a society to make that happen. And it's just so sad and so damn. What do you suggest to someone who's listening? Because I have a lot of young people listening to this. What's something that that's we can do as an individual to just make some sort of change because this whole thing is a cycle and it's a circle. And I feel that if we don't do something, it's just going to keep perpetuating. And what can we do? What do you suggest? Well, you know, and right now we're still in this place of pandemic, right? So that makes it that much harder because normally what I would say is go out volunteer, go out, you know, get your friends together and, and, and go volunteer at, at a shelter or, 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 or try to work on, on some new initiative that gets stopped there. But right now we can't do that. And so for, for young people, especially, and really for anyone, I've personally has, have used this time when I'm not out making noise in the streets, I've used this time at home alone. I got COVID laid off last May, so I haven't been working since then. But I've used that time. I've read. I've read about all of these issues that I never had time to read about. You know, I always talk about how the, the resistance changed the changed the left in some really fundamental ways, but mostly what it did is it unsiloed all of us. We know we left the space of environmentalists over there doing their thing and disability activists over there doing their thing and abortion rights people over there and queers over there and trans over there. And we all came together with this common enemy. And in that process, we learned so much about each other and we learned about each other's struggles and we adopted each other's struggles. We said, your struggle is my struggle. My struggle is your struggle. And we're all in this together. And that was beautiful. And so after that four years of, of, of hell slash a lot of joy, um, because we found a lot of joy and resistance, didn't we? It was it was good to have that time to reflect and good to have that time to sort of read and to delve into things that I that I hadn't had the opportunity to delve into. For young people, I I always I always want to recommend reading as much as you can about topic topics from reputable sources. Read, learn as much as you can. You can join online communities to flesh out your knowledge and to make those connections. And then maybe by next fall, you know, after, after, if a, if a thousand young people in New York city 
read up on homelessness and learned the issues and learned about the needs and the struggles and the history and the way that the laws have been twisted and turned and turned into something that doesn't help anyone, you know, maybe they can come together and get out in the streets after we've finally beaten this virus back. Maybe they'll come up with innovative solutions from a perspective of, of youth and not being weighed down by, by history and by all of the, all of the baggage that, that our generation is carrying around from having seen failure after failure after failure different places you know maybe they'll actually be able to, to to come up with some great new ideas does this kind of work energize you or does it drain you overall it energizes me i the connections that you make in this kind of activist work are just gold the, the people you know like i said when i went to that first gaze against guns meeting I, I did know a few people around the room but once we started really actively organizing and making a structure and gaze against guns and what have you and formed our steering committee and I sat on that and still sit on that four years later, five years later, I was working with a bunch of people I had never met before, uh, with a bunch of people from different backgrounds, different ages, you know, all of those sorts of things. And that is so meaningful to me meeting people and hearing their stories and 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 finding out from their com- where they're coming from getting their perspective that to me is the most energizing thing imaginable and so yeah i mean some don't get me wrong there have been times when i've had to you know be a good old southern lady and take to the bed for you know for a day or two and just <laughs> and order order in every meal <laughs> um, even even before lockdown but i uh, know just overall it, it's life energy to me you know what i saw you walk by a group of police officers i think we were on the way to a meeting uh, on a thursday night you said something to them like uh, something about all the overtime they were getting about, you know, what was going on in the world. But the way you said it was, I was like, I was like, he's just so cool. The way you said it was you were nice to them, but yet you were acknowledging like the situation. And yet you were just like really strong in your own personhood. And I was like, "Ah, I want to be more like that. I want to be like a bad, you know what? I don't curse on my podcast, but you know what I'm saying? (laughs) <laughs> but i have uh, well, to let I, you go because you have another meeting but um yeah no with with that thing that with the cops you know i i have a whole set of issues with the nypd you know i've been jacked up by cops over the years for absolutely nothing because i fit a description you know long before i was doing any of the activist work at all even 20 years ago but you know there is there there is this it's a dance that activists in New York play with the NYPD. There's a, there's a, there is, you're a performer, there's a performative aspect to it. You know, we have our roles, we know what they are. And when they're being normal, it can be perfectly, perfectly acceptable. You know, it's, it's, it's that balance between freedom of speech and order. And, you know, we know what our rights are. They know what their orders are. And usually everything's fine, unless the majority of the people who are doing the action are Black or Brown and young or trans or queer. And then it starts getting twisted because then you're dealing with the emotional issues that these cops have and the the built-up detritus that they have from whatever they come from. And that's when we have these real, really horrible situations that have developed over the course.
course, you know, since last summer, Queer Liberation March, which I'm a part of, which is coming back this June on Pride Sunday. You know, we had a we had a great hands-off thing from the cops for the entire route of the march last year. Cops that were assigned to us were they respected our wishes, they hung back, we marshaled ourselves, everything was fine, we got everybody from Foley Square up to Washington Square Park and into the park. And at the very, very tail end, our, our the guys that had been tailing had been accompanying us had gone practically, or they were sitting in their cars or whatever. We get to the very tail end, and then the the response team, I can't remember what their actual initials are, emergency response team, ERT maybe, from the NYPD had apparently been laying in wait near Washington Square Park, and then they just attacked the tail end of the march on Waverly Place for no reason, for absolutely no reason. Well, technically, the reason was that somebody scribbled on a cop car in a in a maybe two inch by four inch space on a cop car with a Sharpie. But that was enough for them to violently grab that person and then attack other people. And, you know, it's it's this odd circumstance with the NYPD where they, they just organize them, themselves to this place of attacking, uh, of attacking protesters. And we got to fix it. You know, so that's going to be a big part of my work coming out of uh, coming out of the last year. I hope we can, can, can continue our conversation because there's so much to talk about. But I know you have to go. I, I so appreciate your time tonight. I just want to say I, I love what you're doing. I respect you. I think you're wonderful. Please come back. Thank you. I'd love to come back and uh, see you anytime. And I can't wait to see you soon. Again. I can't wait till we can be back at Joe's Pub and I can hear you belting out a tune or two. Thank you so much. Have a good night, okay? You too, Michelle. Bye-bye. Bye. The Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast has original music composed by Joshua Holloway. Find him on YouTube, Joshua Holloway Music. This podcast is written by Michelle Bruckner and edited by Michelle Bruckner and Joshua Holloway. Find me on Instagram, Showgirl Tip of Day. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week with a new episode. Oh,